Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 65 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Broadway Billy. And I'm joined here by my buoyant co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, a man who's been described as a mix between Meyer Lansky and Novel Ravikant. I am talking about the heartthrob of Eastern Europe, JJ. How's it going? Hey, What's going on, brother? How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Hopefully you're feeling all right. Uh, today. Death is sexy, man. Death is sexy, brother. You know what I mean? That's what, that, that's what makes me heartthrob. <laughs> he is, man. Uh, the Eastern Europe loves this guy. It's a... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, our guest today is a man who's been profiled in Jack Schwager's latest market series, Market Wizards book, a man who has achieved an average annual compound return of 42% in 10 plus years, the author of The Global Macro Edge and former bookie, the man whose favorite... <laughs> the man whose favorite day is Monday. Of course, I'm talking about John Neto. John, how's it going, man? Well, it's not Monday, but I'm still having a good time. Okay. So yeah, we're doing good. My man, my man. Thanks for joining yeah. us. He's got on the uh the Golden Knights shirt. How they how they've been doing this year? I haven't been following too we're much. BGK's crushing it. We're gonna go claim the cup this year, baby. We're taking it down. Best yeah. home ice advantage in all of hockey. Vegas Golden Knights. It's it's pretty incredible, John. It's how much the city really got behind the Knights. I mean, maybe not surprising. Uh, what do you think? Not surprising to natives. Um, I'm I'm blessed enough that they practice about a mile from my house. I live in a, a section called Summerlin, this this planned community here, mm-hmm. and the, the Knights Arena, um, City, uh, Citibank Arena. They practice that's close by, so it's a real communal sense. I, I would take the, the accounts from the players themselves with the Golden Knights, and that the NHL players who've come from all over the league have described it as like just a, a spirit and a, and a fervor and a passion that's like none other that they've seen. And that's saying a lot given the Canadian contingent of players that are on the Golden Knights, mm-hmm. because obviously Canadians love their hockey. And for them to like rate the fan and the energy of the, of the, of the fortress or of, of T-Mobile Arena, which is where the Golden Knights play, is like the biggest home ice in hockey for a city basically that, that is desert, that is, you know, landlocked by desert. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely is. How about the uh, the Raiders? I know they couldn't have any fans in the stadium. I think the NFL is planning on getting fans. You you think we're going to get the same energy around the Raiders? If not more, I mean, I think you know the, the novelty of football is that is that because there are that the games are events, right? Like like you know you think about college football, pro football, the tailgating, whereas baseball is more like like a series of events or a series of of, of inputs that determines the winner. Yeah. Football because it is such a compressed schedule. You know, now 17 games. These are events. People plan a year in advance to come to one game. They plan a weekend around it. And like, there is no better, you know, entertainment infrastructure than Las Vegas when it comes to facilitating that, when it comes to facilitating this festive at- atmosphere. And you're in the Northeast, or you're in the, you know, another part of the country, and it's November, or December, like, you're going to travel to Las Vegas. Yeah. And like, you need an excuse anyway. Now the Patriots <laughs> are playing, the Chiefs are playing, or, you know, the Packers are playing. I mean, think about the, you know, the, the following of these teams. So, yeah. I think the NFL is going to crush in Vegas. I think that the, the Vegas atmosphere will be like one of those sort of um, out-of-body experiences, Experiences, frankly, for those that attend the games. And, and as it's been for the hockey side, I've been to a couple of hockey games, and they're just incredible. Like, imagine the NFL, NFL will be at the same level. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and to your point, I already looked if the Jets were playing out in Vegas. Uh, you know, my team, so I, I plan on doing the same thing. I mean, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's incredible. 
Um, John, I thought it was funny how Jack um, made a point to uh, preface before your chapter of how, how hard your chapter was to compile. How was the interview process for you from your perspective? Um, like, like many of my other interviews, you know, ad lib, impromptu, spontaneous, um, free flowing, uh, extemporaneous, those things, because it's, there's a lot in this brain and, and, it, and my mouth is the bottleneck, you know, and I want to get it all out. And, uh, but I sort of like managed when I trade to synthesize this information and put it together and, and combine it with an intuitive sort of qualitative holistic process. And what you get is like Jack Schwager, who's a very, who interviews you like you would expect from an engineer. Okay. And so when he interviewed me, it happened over two different days. The first was a six hour sit down interview followed by another four hour follow up phone interview. Okay. And Jack is incredibly thorough, like engineering, like thorough, wants to get to the details, wants to understand to the extent that you want to share with him, of course, because a lot of us market wizards, and I use that term, you know, in quotes, have proprietary information that while we definitely like sharing the concept or the spirit of something, the nuance and the details is, is where a lot of the alpha lies. And so I'm not, I'm, I'm all about sharing how people get the right way, but you know, you know, I'll teach you how to fish, but I'm not going to teach you the, 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 the spot on the pond at what time of the morning to go there, you know what I mean? To come up with it, all right? And so there's a little bit of that balance and that tug, but but Jack is very, you know, um, Jack's a great interview and he's very detailed. I'm like, he'll call you out on stuff. Like what you said this earlier, because he doesn't want any bogus stuff in his book. And I enjoy that. I enjoy the, the rigor that he puts into it. So he was very rigorous. He reviewed all my personal account statements for, you know, um, he had 10 years of account statements he reviewed for me. Um, he reviewed a certified audit from a CPA that went over my performance, my personal account. And, and he asked about this. He said, tell me about this drawdown here. How do you explain that there? How's your theory evolved? Or how's your strategy evolved? How have you evolved? And all of these things, you know, I just described as incredibly comprehensive. And it was, you know, he made me think sometimes like, hmm, why do I do that? You know, and, and I often come back to, you know, sort of the manifestation of my, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 hours of market work. And, and, and frank, frankly, life experiences, because our life experiences really formulate and shape how we trade beyond more than what we may, may give them credit for. Absolutely. And I, I think that's what your chapter um, really touched on. And, and we'll get into some of that. Just a reminder to the listeners, if you guys would like to trade alongside JJ and myself and a professional group of traders, join us at microefutures.com. John, you had a, uh, you know, I joked in the beginning, you had actually, uh, you're a bookie, you had a successful, you know, run in high school. Uh, until until it blew up, but it seems like this kind of uh, maybe set you up for like a lesson uh, later on in life. Yeah, I um, you know, as I talk about in in, in the Unknown Market Wizards book, um, I ran a bookie operation, or I I provided liquidity for those wishing to prognosticate on the outcome of sporting events. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well said, yeah, well said. Nice that's, disclaimer. That's what law school does to you, by the way. All right, mm. <laughs> you, you find ways to recharacterize things. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I did. And, and, and I think a lot of us, all of us here, and, and I imagine most of your listeners have the gene that you have, you know, contributes or facilitates a pension for taking on risk, right? And we all love taking on risk. And the idea, the, the idea that I was surrendering my power as a bookie, because in some sense, that's what you're doing. As a market maker, that's what you're doing in some regard. Like you are, you are surrendering some of your decision-making power, some of it, because you're facilitating liquidity, you're facilitating order flow. And that order flow is determined by the counterparty in that case. Okay, so for me in high school, the idea that like the other person got to pick was like 
I don't know, that loss of autonomy was something I had to reconcile at first, but it was, it was you know, as counterintuitive to, 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 what you, to what we might think, the fact that it proved to be profitable for most of the time, you know, a, a sans some more rigorous risk management. And I would also say counterparty risk because I was letting people bet on credit, you know, and, and I would say that their credit worthiness um, was, was high. And part of the issue I faced was that the people that owed me money didn't pay, you know what I mean? Whereas the people that won, wanted to get paid. Mm. And you can have an 11 to 10 edge, but if the people who lose don't pay you, then it will not only negate that edge, it will like turn it into a, you know, a negative expected value situation. Right, right. Right, and, and that's what you ran into. You ran into a, an event where it was like 24 out of 26 yeah. Yeah. winners, yeah. right? Yeah. It was, COVID. it was COVID in March, 2020. You know what I mean? Like it came and it was, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> These two delta puts on the S and P are now like a hundred deltas. What happened there? Yeah, you know, yeah. like what's what? What I think, and you tell me what you think, and what this, you know, because I, I feel like this is a lesson that can be learned in trading, right? And this is something I learned from poker. Is you, you start to understand how. Um, how we can underestimate or maybe overestimate these low percent chances happening and, and protecting yourself against these uh, scenarios. Right. right. Um, yeah. And, and so there's a couple of factors to that one is it's, is it's, we not only underestimate these chances of happening, but we also underestimate the asymmetrical nature of this risk as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I think a lot of people mistakenly, like you'll hear advertisements of systems say, Oh, I win 80% of my trades. I win 70% of my trades. I win 90% of my trades. But what's more and more to me is the profit factor behind something because it's net, net, what are you making basically, which effectively is what the product fact, profit factor determines. Like, well, great. You had 10 wins where you made 50 bucks, but three losses where you lost 60 bucks. So net, net, you're down 10 on whatever, you know, 13 trades. So you have a profit factor that's actually negative, you know, or, or whatever. Like my point though, in terms of measuring the net effect of that. So I think that case comes into play when you're talking about these, like not only the low appreciation for this risk, but then the sort of damage it does when that event hits, okay? And I think that's where a lot of the disconnect comes for people and where I kind of try and like, you know, hit that on in, in the book, you know, my book, The Global Macro Wage, Maximize Return Punitive Risk. It really is the concept of how do you maximize return punitive risk? Well, the first part of that is de defining what a unit of risk is. What is it you're risking? Because, you know, what we see in the investment world, and this is, you know, to the chagrin of trillions and trillions of dollars is there's, I give you, you know, a um, million dollars to trade, okay? And a lot of us come from the absolute return world, you know, the market maker world's like, okay, what are you making or losing relative to the risk I'm giving you, right? And so, okay, if I give you a million bucks, I might say to you, okay, listen, dude, you can lose 200 grand of that million. That's your stop loss. You can't lose the whole million. The million's there for buying power and margin purposes, but I'm not gonna let you lose 200K. Now go to the next guy, maybe a more passive investment or traditional portfolio manager. He may have the whole million dollars. There's no risk budget behind him. He just lose half a million of that or, you know, all of that. And no one really talks about these sort of tough, you know, preemptive conversations about, well, where am I going to stop you out? Don't happen. Whereas maybe you and I like have a million dollars and we can only lose 200 grand of that. And we know that up front. So that unit of risk for us is 200K for someone else might be a million. But here's the worst part is that now that million dollars falls by 300 grand, the investor comes in and says, oh, well, I'm gonna pull it from you. And you're like, well, why are you gonna pull it from me? Well, because you lost 300 grand. Well, but I didn't know if I lost 300 grand, I would, I would get pulled. Otherwise I would have behaved differently. And so you get investors that end up making these emotional decisions to either chase a hot strategy or withdraw from one or pull money from one, which is not training because they simply didn't set a risk budget. And we as a manager 
if we know what our risk budget is, if we know at what point we're stopped out going in, we're gonna, we're gonna manage risk accordingly to that. So my whole concept, so to your question about, you know, rare outside events, I think it's part of a broader discussion of, well, how do we approach risk in general? You know, from a portfolio level, from a trade level, from a strategy level, if I'm running five strategies in my portfolio, each one of them needs a risk budget. I'm not gonna put a risk budget on the upside, but I'm gonna put a risk budget on the downside, you know? Right, right, absolutely. John, you were you were a uh, Marine for yeah. nine years before you got into trading. Uh, do you think being, a, I would imagine there's probably certain things being a Marine prepared you very well for uh, in trading. Yeah, and life for that matter. Um, you know, I mean, sort of following up on the bookie story from high school, like I didn't have a very good grade point average. I like a you know, D plus C minus average in high school. Um, I was running a full-time gambling operation, which took my attention and my passion, you know, away from, but I did go to school because I had to meet my customers, you know, so I, I, I stellar attendance. Okay? And, and, and the classroom was a place to sort of, you know, hang out and, and do what I had to do, but, but it also sort of contributed to this sense of, you know, this lack of discipline and this lack of accountability and, and the Marine Corps was not going to have any of that. Okay. And it was an awakening. It was a rebirth in many ways. And, you know, I, uh, a lot, a lot to, you know, the, the Marine Corps allowed me to go to Japan where I learned to speak Japanese and ultimately Chinese. They, they paid for my, my, my education at the University of Washington, went through officer candidate school. Um, you know, it was, a, it was an existential experience to say the least. And I'm forever grateful for that. And, and once a Marine, always a Marine. And, and we actually took the profits from the book because of my Marine Corps background and because of what I saw firsthand and actually donated it to purchase, um, help eight different service dogs go to military veterans with PTSD which is a, you know, having had colleagues of mine that went to fought in Iraq, fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, I saw the effects of that and, and, and we need to do everything we can for our men and women veterans out there who serve bravely for us overseas and, and domestically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Indeed. shout out to everyone who served and, and yourself too, John, thanks. Thank um, you. Yeah, um, so the, uh, I'm, just, I'm just curious cause you know, I've had some buddies who joined the Marines and just, just talking to like that initial like training yeah. What was that experience? Where were you? Did you go in prepared? Were you an athletic person growing up? What was it like? Yeah, more athletic than I am now, for sure. Um, I was 18, joined the Marines. I did a lot of running and elevation. So I went. So there's two boot camps you can go to. There's San Diego or Paris Island. Um, I grew up in California. I'm a West Coast. I'm a West Coast Marine. I'm a Hollywood Marine, as they called it. <laughs> um, you know, so I went to 1993 and 94. So I'm, I'm 46 now. I was 18 when I went then. So you're talking 28, 29 years ago. Um, but it was... It was just intense. I mean, you're dealing with no telephone. We didn't have the internet in 94. That wasn't a thing, um, at least mm. that the mainstream knew about. And, you know, one phone call 11 weeks in, which you can just imagine. I mean, I, I felt like, whoa, with no phone call to my mom or my dad or my brother. I can only imagine today what that's like. I mean, maybe on business, maybe every Sunday they let them you know, access their smartphones. Now, I have no idea what they do. Mm -hmm. But it was just, you know, you're talking about your drill instructors are going to find your weakness. Your drill instructors are your people who are in charge of you. And they're, they're the mean people that scream that you see from all these movies and stuff. And, and they push you to, to a level you can't get to, frankly, without them. And it's incredibly stressful. And they want to see how you handle, how you handle the stress, you know, and that's, and that's the rub there, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I, I like, I like what you said too, in the book. And I, you know, I almost like equate it to like an athlete, like how an athlete practices, uh, so much that it's just reactionary in the game and like and you got you talk to how the marines how you guys would practice uh you know train under such high stress 
that you, you you already know how to act. And, and I feel like you can make a parallel to trading uh, yeah. that, that you, you, you're, you're, you're prepared to when, so like when it's time to make a trade, it's, is it, you think that's a fair comparison? Yeah. I'm kind of an assassin when it comes to trading. Like it just, it's mm-hmm. very like when you get to a spot where you can like incorporate or assimilate your intuition on top of a strategy and you kind of get the joke, cause this is kind of all a hustle. Okay. Like, 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 let's just exactly. like sit and watch and watch all this BS. I mean, I don't know to what degree I can swear on here, but there's a lot of bullshit that goes on in the markets every day. Exactly. From algos, from people, from Preach. retail, from, from, you know, Robin Hood, from, <laughs> and, and you've got to like love, learn to love the nonsense. You know what I mean? Or like enjoy the suck, as we say in the Marine Corps, just this, yeah. this crappy, like, are you kidding me? Type of bullshit. <laughs> that goes on, you know? and, and that's just, and like, and that's just trading. And like, and, and it's kind of like playing poker, you know, like a guy draws a two outer on the river and he beats you on a two outer on the river. It's just, I mean, that's poker. You know what I mean? That's trading. Like you get Trump, you get Trump tweeted, you get Pearl Harbor, you know what I mean? By yeah. some somewhere. Yeah. Like that's, that's why you got to manage risk. And like sometimes managing risk means that like you get stopped out of the woes or like you buy a bad spot or Bitcoin on Thanksgiving Eve, you know, smashes you down or whatever. Like I know all of them. Okay. Like it's just, I get it. So it's kind of like just appreciating that and just kind of like just being tougher than, than most of the others because everyone's going through this at some level and most people kind of just can't hack it, you know, because like it's not fair or, you know, there are other like, you know, personal issues come into play, which is fine because it happens for all of us. But it's, if you don't have the training, if you haven't built the foundation, the psychological foundation, you haven't put in the mental capital, you haven't put in the, the quantitative capital, quite frankly, to, to really educate yourself and keep growing and keep evolving and keep, you know, having real earnest conversations with yourself to have a support group. I think it's freaking tough, man. I think it's a, this is a tough way to make an easy living. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Very true. John, um, a book that you mentioned being very influential on you as a trader was uh, De Napoli Levels. Yeah. Um, I believe it talks about Fibonacci application. Do, do yeah. FIBs still play a large role into your trading strategies? Um. From an overarching view, yes. Um, Joe Napoli's work on you know D levels, training with Napoli levels is just like a game changer for anyone that that understands. I mean, this was, book was written like 1999, I think, or 2000. Yeah, and it's still still relevant. Would you say? Very relevant. Very, very yeah. relevant. Because the concept that he talks about is is basically you know spots to provide liquidity. Okay, and where are these spots? And effectively stacking um, multiple overlaying independent structures into one structure to where you have like a, a much higher confidence interval as to the efficacy of that trade, all right? And that concept, that principle is still very relevant today. I think will be relevant for some time to come. So you might like apply sort of like the cryptocurrency trade, at least conceptually in that. Now, while it's not necessarily like FIB based, but the idea that I'm gonna take two or three or four prevailing macro narratives, I'm gonna combine them on top of let's say, you know, what's likely, you know, a very good momentum trade followed by buying pullbacks with a strong trend in, in a sort of environment that's conducive to this. And what you get is these four or five different independent factors, which can, which support buying Ethereum, for example, you know what I mean? And like, okay, I have the fundamental, I have the sentiment and I have the technical. So those things like now, now how then can I tactically implement that? All right. And so that concept of what Joe Napoli taught was how to build a structure. Now then how am I going to adapt that structure? I'm going to adapt that style to what works for me in my situation. That's the beauty of the markets is that there's, they're going all day long. There really are no day. Like you look at, you know, trading crypto during the Asian sessions, like maybe trading isn't best during US hours for crypto. 
the, the most volatile markets might come during Asian and European sessions. And that's a function of you to, to assimilate. And while maybe legacy finance people, you know, live in the East Coast, I live in New York for eight years. I roll into my midtown Manhattan office at like 8.15, 8 in the morning. We do our initial brief, 9.30 US equities open. You know, okay, you're messaging people, you're calling people. Well, that schedule, frankly, is not conducive to trading crypto right now. You know, you're trading crypto from your smartphone or from your living room, which is where I live. You know what I mean? Like, this is me. You know what I mean? Like doing my, this is my, my shtick, okay? And like, and I go outside and put my golden retrievers, you know, in some days, like, and they, yeah. you know, so I'm walking to the park, like whatever, because I was trading Ethereum all night long. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's just what the market is. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so you're, so you're fairly active in crypto. Yeah. Like, I mean, that, 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 that is the macro trade right now. Like you're yeah. dealing with, with a, with an institutional, you're dealing with a store of value trade that you can't kind of get in the way of because you're dealing with institutional money. Treasury departments and institutions out there need to own Bitcoin and need to own Ethereum. They right now don't care if it's the most efficient crypto. They don't care if it's yeah. if, what, what it costs to do a transaction on the blockchain through Ethereum. They understand that broadly that they need to, over the next six months, nine months, a year, have a 2%, 3%, 4% allocation to this, that if they're going to be properly diversified, this is what they have to do. And what you're seeing here in this market, I believe, and why it's been, trading's never easy, okay? But why it's been a more fluid trading market is because that these passive buy programs from these institutions are coming in yeah. via the, you know, the CME futures have given a lot of credibility to it. A lot of the adopters have given credibility to it. And the reality is there's a lot of people that still don't understand it, but they know that they have to own it in some capacity. And you have investment committees now making mandates for this stuff and they have to own it. And so what that allows you to is if you can find spots to provide liquidity, because let's face it, the, a market with this kind of return is going to attract a lot of leveraged traders to it because that's just what this does. And these leveraged traders at the time become overexposed. And when they become overexposed and they get caught on the, over their skis, they're forced to liquidate. They come down and they provide you with spots to generate liquidity. And there is manipulation that goes on and that's fine. It's just, but it's about keeping your size in check because you've got big institutions behind you in much the same way behind the S&P 500. Passive flows now on the S&P 500 are a huge factor in determining overall performance when you have certain market regimes in place, i.e. perennially low interest rates, look at that compared to the S&P dividend yield. When that's the case, you're, you're an active, you're an active you know, portfolio manager. You're going to have to own the S&P and you're measured against that benchmark. Yep. Step in and buy it in a risk-defined way. And if you're not greedy and you manage risk well, you put yourself in a good position to do well. Yeah, very true. Yeah, John, um, Dan got the, so, you know, Dan is the one who set up the interview. He's, he's talked to you on the phone. He got back to me and he said, when he talked to you about crypto, he was so pumped up. He was like, yo, the market wizard, he's trading crypto. He's like, it's here to stay. He's like, I knew it. Like he, he was, he was all pumped up. Cause these are the things me and him talk about, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so he's pumped up. Ethereum uh, was at 1400 when we talked about six weeks ago. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. So you, so you mentioned Ethereum. Are, are there any other coins that you're active in, uh, trading? You know, truthfully, like, because so much of my, of my time is focused on um, just the futures, yeah. it's Bitcoin and Ethereum. I watch the other, I watch other coins from an ancillary perspective, but like, if you got me into like my brother and my, and my network, I tend to do more listening on, on the coins they're trading, you know, the altcoin stable coins, but just keeping an eye on, okay, how, how to get this kind of monster yield. And again, going back to the sort of Ethereum trade, because that is a market that I trade pretty actively and yeah. I'm, and I'm yeah. in pretty actively, like... I just don't know how that market doesn't like rockets up to 10 or 15,000 per coin. It just, 
And so yeah. one, there's, there's so much institutional underexposure to it that aside from, like, it, it's a trade I think you can almost be too smart for your own good, yeah. okay? That you, you can say to yourself, you know, oh, well, there's already six different technologies that, that are better than Ethereum right now at doing this. Yeah, but don't let perfect get in the way of better, okay? And right now, the first institutional adoption is going to come in this way, and they're only in like the first or second inning of that adoption, and they need to own this, they need to have some exposure, and it's kind of like the QQQ ETF or the SPY ETF, like, well, I got to have something here because right now, yeah. I can't tell my investors that I have no exposure to crypto. If I even tell them I have 2 or 3 or 4% exposure, that's defensible, but no exposure is not defensible, and it's going to lose me my job, okay? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, 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 yeah, it's exciting times. It's awesome. It's awesome to hear this. This is, uh, you know, a lot of things, a lot of us have, uh, you know, been speculating on for some time. It's good to hear it, you know, from someone like yourself. Um, it goes both ways though. Like I can't, like I'm saying this is someone that traded the 2000 NASDAQ crash that was in Midtown Manhattan in 2008 when the great financial crisis hit. All right. Like, yeah. like I get asked all the time, like when, when plumbers come to my house or, you know, like I had a plumbing leak in my, in my garage like five weeks ago, which was like, this is perfect. Like there's never a great time for your pipe to freaking burst, okay? On your water heater, right? So my pipe bursts and like the loss mitigation team comes in and three of the five people like are on their smartphone trading like Dogecoin and <laughs> my opinion on it, okay? They're like guys making 15, 16, 17 bucks an hour, which is, which is a lot of Americans out there, okay? And I thought it was an interesting sample set of like people who, are looking to be more active in their investment portfolio. And you know what? If crypto is the gateway drug that causes that, even better. You know what I mean? Like the fact that, that, that millennials or people in their 20s now can, can are enticed by crypto, regardless of how it ends. Well, hopefully it ends well, or hopefully, you know, which I think this will. But I think that even if crypto, I mean, here's the thing. I'm going to be clear about this, all right? There's a lot of people that were bullish tech in 99, 2000, but still lost everything when it sold down, okay? And so- you can be bullish Bitcoin and ride it from shoot 50,000 to 250 and still lose it all from 250 back to 200. You know what I mean? That's true. And, yep. and that's just how this goes down. But I guess my point is that that sample set and, and the continuous sample set I get from people asking me, Oh, you were in market wizards. Oh, you wrote this book. What do you think of crypto? You think it's overvalued? I'm like, that's not the way this works, guys. It doesn't work like it's overvalued. It's like it works that there's supply and there's demand. Okay. And if the Thank people you. who need to own it, don't own enough of it, then you got a supply problem, okay? If the people who own it own too much of it, and you get rid of it, you got a demand problem because the people that they're gonna have to push down demand, whereas if the people don't own enough of it, they're gonna push up, they're gonna drive up prices exactly. down the spot, okay? And that's Thank it. Thank you. You know what? I've been, I, we teach every day and nobody in, in the retail, they never think about supply and demand. It's a market, right? So <laughs> exactly, right? Thank you. I really appreciate that. That was beautiful. This piece of dirt, like Las Vegas is the hottest real estate market in the country right now. Okay. And this piece of dirt made of sand. Okay. It's just sand. And by itself, it's just some sand. But yeah. the location of it, it's proximity to downtown Las Vegas. It's proximity to other key, you know, convenient desired areas. All right. Are, is a factor that determines its demand. And there ain't much supply of Vegas real estate in the right locations, given all the Californians and other people trying to move here right now. And I don't care if, you know, this house it's on is like only worth 300,000 materials. If it's in the right location and there's not much of it out there, 
it could be worth $2 million for this house. Okay. Exactly. And I don't need to really hear what you think about, oh, well, the <laughs> that. doesn't fucking, sorry, it doesn't matter to me. Exactly. What the market's doing and the supply exactly. and demand. Exactly. I, I lived in Vancouver for 26 years. You're a 50 by 100 foot lot selling for 5 million bucks, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome, welcome foreign investors. Welcome the Chinese. Yeah. Welcome, you know, whatever. Like, I mean, they're doing Demand. it. Demand, supply. Like, that's it. I mean, whatever, however many Ethereum tokens there are, I mean, just in, there's just not enough institutions that own enough of it right now. And as we're talking, I mean, I, I just don't listen. It can happen. There's going to be a wipeout move. But I would say this as well that having been part of many wipeout moves of the downside, having traded COVID, having traded you know, the GFC, having traded the 03, 02 bear market, having traded 2000 bear market. Like there's an ebb and flow when they stop buying the dips, okay? And, and this is where understanding optionality, understanding risk-defined structures and just being through these that I'm looking forward to playing the down move in crypto as well. But that time ain't now. That time ain't now. How's that now? <laughs> ain't now. John, so, uh, you know, you live in Vegas, former bookie, you've, you've played poker, you said you sports betted, you, you strike me as someone who might be uh, interested in maybe some NFT horse racing. Have you, have you been seeing any of that? You know, <laughs> there really are only so many hours in the day and only so many days <laughs> of life. Um, but, but I do appreciate, I, I did watch the Kentucky Derby last week with my daughter and yeah. I can tell she's got a little bit of the gambling bug in her, she's only four, okay? <laughs> it was, <laughs> she was jumping up and down and she liked the hot rod charlie was her play in the derby and she because when the announcer was reading down the name she's like hot rod charlie I'm like and i and i filmed up a video of her like jumping up and down and hot rod charlie she showed in the derby okay and she was cheering the horse around and like a few days after there was like daddy i want to watch hot rod charlie although actually hot rod charlie now got got the place with the disqualification of the winner mm. so actually hot rod charlie ultimately gets the place although for for cash for for ticket cashing purposes you know she showed oh, yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. Which is all we care about, okay? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We don't care about if, like, if J.P. Morgan gets convicted of convict or, or manipulating the silver market five years later when I'm stopped out in 2014. <laughs> that doesn't do me any good. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the, oh, man, no, there's nothing like it, man. The, the horse racing is, is exciting. I, I remember just me growing up being a kid. I mean, but I'm a degenerate now, but, you know, maybe that explains it. But it just, just, and even just the virtual, we, you know, we got some in the stable now. We've been racing them. It's, uh, yeah, it's fun, man. It's a uh, uh, unique, interesting things going on. I guess going back to traditional markets now. Yeah. Um, uh, another so thing, that, you know, because the traditional markets no longer trade in a traditional way, right? They're like between smartphones and futures and, and the impersonal nature of it, or the much more impersonal nature, yeah. or, or yeah. What, what's conducted like over Twitter now. Like, like people trade ideas on Twitter and can you trust it? And, you know, man, if I, Bet if I put five hundred dollars in this coin, I could be a millionaire in three weeks. You know what I mean? Like these are special. This is not. There's nothing traditional about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. Well, well, let me ask you this: like the you talk about the the market narrative, the prevailing market narrative, and how important it is. Uh, can I guess one? Can you delve into why that's so important? And then two, what do you think? You know, what's the market narrative right now? Sure. Um, Market narrative is really important because there's there's a few things that like need that, that are generally conducive of rising stock prices, rising asset prices. Okay, that's access to liquidity, economic growth. Um, Fed policy kind of falls into the first bucket in terms of access to liquidity because the Fed plays a role in that. But then you can also deal with like idiosyncratic factors, like maybe you know mortgage lenders are facing certain fiscal regulation that could be inhibiting things, or tax policy that comes into play. And so when you size those things up, all right, 
what is monetary policy right now? Largely conducive. What are, um, you know, what are, what, are, what is, what sort of fiscal policy do we have out there? Largely conducive. Um, what are people's, you know, attitudes and, and overall profitability? Well, we're making new all-time highs almost every day, you know, I mean, in these things. And so, you know, for passive flows out there, as people decide, okay, and how am I going to put my money in? Well, I want to save because, you know, rates aren't frankly returning, you know, the sort of the, the, the kind of returns that you can get that are conducive to like living in a, in a world that, that sort of has the, the inflation that we're seeing right now, you know? And so when we talk about market narrative, we're looking at, all right, what's at play? Is it, you know, how convicted can I be around a short trade when the Fed is committed to lower the log and the Fed is committed to seeing inflation take place? Well, I might be able to be convicted to, to a curve steepening trade if I want to short 30-year treasuries, maybe by the five-year treasuries, because that, that, that shows sort of where the Fed is not going to touch interest rates in the short term, but they'll let inflation, inflation run wild, which will obviously cause the curve, which should, I should say, not obviously, which should cause the curve to steepen, all things being equal. Um, but, but that's what I mean by the overall macro narrative. On, applying that to the cryptocurrency side, the narrative is institutions need to own this stuff. Mm -hmm. Institutions are systemically underexposed. They are fundamentally underexposed, okay? And so in a market like that, when you have that kind of systemic underexposure, you do not on balance want to be selling dips, okay? On balance, you do not want to be selling dips, mm -hmm. right? On balance, you can be tactically short. I don't mind you selling new highs, okay? And like very tactically, mm -hmm. but I'd rather buy dips or buy, or buy, buy liquidity events on the downside, like what we saw in Ethereum yesterday where it sells down 10 or 12% in, in a matter of, you know, an hour, okay? Well, that's a spot where someone's probably, again, you know, it's all easy in hindsight, okay? But I'm trying to give examples yeah. to mm -hmm. sort of draw, draw, to, draw a parallel to, and that is, you know, was there some fundamental news that came out? Was there some regulatory risk? So, so I'll get back to the market narrative right now. And on balance, you know, with the adopters, with the institutional adopters we see, with Goldman Sachs, with, with these people who are like needing to own this stuff, understand how politics works in this country, okay? And let's just think about like what, what threats exist to cryptocurrency. And the biggest thing that comes to me is that like it becomes just outlawed, okay? Like, like what is the regulatory risk? And I say to myself, well, both Democrats and Republicans can be bought and paid for in the White House, all right, and in Congress. Let's not kid each other, okay? And is there enough of a political, is there enough special interest money via crypto from not only like the people who are like the originators of it, but I mean like the institutions who are adopting it, you know, the broader scale and what exists now, which exists three years ago, I think this is embedded in the crypto narrative is the institutional mandates out there. And Wall Street has it is freaking in, in bed with freaking Washington DC in all aspects of it. Republicans, Democrats, mm -hmm. all right? Washington lives on money. K Street lives on money, okay? And Wall Street is more than eager to support that especially now with their well-heeled pockets from the cryptocurrency. So any attempt to legislate or any attempt to like um, discredit, all right, or combust this, this crypto move through greater taxation on crypto profits, which some bullshit they're talking about, like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to tax crypto at a higher rate, sure, right. Um, so, so, you know, like, like come on. You know, and, 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 and there's some gamesmanship in this because, you know, if I'm an institution underexposed, I don't mind dropping that headline out there, even though I know it's not true. And like, maybe I get a 10% pullback. Exactly. You know, like yeah. you got to like, your bullshit meter has to be really high these days with, with these headlines and with oh, yeah. this news and all this, all these disparate information sources. So back to your question about the narrative, the narrative is the fundamental, the fundamental sentiment, the fundamental view that the market holds 
as, as manifested by the positioning by the price action, okay? And the narrative right now that's winning is crypto is not overvalued. Crypto is a destabilizing force that Wall Street is fundamentally underexposed to. And as long as that narrative is in place, then you need to be buying the dips. You need to be providing liquidity on these liquidity events, period. What, uh, I, I'm, an, I'm a newbie to crypto. I'm an old guy. And I, having had a heart attack, I only just trade futures because it's relaxing. Uh, what's relax. the right? <laughs> relaxing. Well, I mean, relaxing. I, I, I'm used to manipulating twenty different stocks simultaneously, but the thing is, uh, what's? I was just curious. What's the price action like in this Ethereum? It's phenomenal. Uh, I mean, it's phenomenal. It, it's absolutely phenomenal. Like it has is a it range. Really? Yeah, you don't, you don't need much leverage. In fact, the futures behind it could give you some leverage. But you're talking a market that has, you know, a six hundred to thousand basis point range every day. Even a two to one leverage, just think about what that equates to. You know what I mean? You're talking to 12 to 20 percent. And there's there's plenty of liquidity for what you're trying to do, for what most of us are trying to do out there. Now, if you're trying to build a billion dollar position, don't That's send a market order, yeah. you know. But if you're trying to, you know, maneuver and make a living, you know, between the fractional ownership aspect, which exists, which is a much more efficient way, between the um and, and a credit to, to, to the cryptocurrency exchanges for facilitating that and making crypto ownership much more accessible through this fractional ownership, you know, um, um, mechanism and through the micro Bitcoin futures. Now they need to come up with a micro Ethereum contract as well, which I'm sure is, is going to be imminent. Around the CME the yeah. loves their exchange fees too much to not do that. And I said that as a <laughs> IOM member. Okay. Um, but the, the, the fractional ownership allows you to get more granular with your risk. So the idea that you can say, okay, Bitcoin is really volatile, but it's not about, if Bitcoin is $56,000, the fact that I can invest $10,000 and then at the end of the day, I can buy a nice dip or I can buy a nice pullback and it could be $11,000. And if you look at it like from through that lens of risk management, Understood. then you're fine. If you look at it like, oh, I can't afford it because like Amazon or it's a 2000 yeah. a share, well, then, then you have a problem. Okay. But if you look at it, I can put 10,000 in and I can own 0.74 Bitcoins or I can own 0.24 yeah. Bitcoins and I can get out 11,000, then, then, then I think that's the right perspective. Cool. Thanks. Good John, you, yeah, you mentioned um, the software that took you um, a while. And I think you said you mentioned you had help doing it. Uh, MPAC, it was acronym, yeah. um, which you use for execution. Do you can so do you, do you consider yourself a discretionary trader? This just executes the trades for you. Or are you maybe a blend of both systematic? Um, just just a little, and I, you know, obviously I don't need you to go heavy into detail. Just, you know, just a little bit around your process. Oh, my problems. Um, Ray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sometimes of a hybrid approach, but I'm a very qualitative holistic trader that, that's built upon a, found, a fundamental conceptual foundation mm -hmm. of what I look for and utilize technology to help execute that. But I would like, I'm the guy that's kind of pulling the levers. You know what I mean? Oh, go two X on that strategy there, go half X on that strategy there, incorporate this qualitative news event relative to these idiosyncratic factors, whether it's the last day of the quarter or triple witch expiration, or the fact there was a bunch of margin calls that existed over here, or there's a halving event that took place. You know what I mean? There are things that yes, you can back test, but I also believe that there's like these really unique one-off events that are not back testable. And I actually eagerly seek those out that are non-back testable events because it's kind of like a wild, a wild poker table. I want to, um, my battery's running low here. I gotta like go to a charger. I want to be at the, at the wild poker table where I got to like make a three X call with like six, seven suited because I know if I pop it, I'm going to like, I'm going to take the guy's stack. 
Okay. Yeah, good analogy. Uh, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, but guess what though? If you can't read people and you can't read situations, you gotta you gotta play your top ten hands. Your aces through tens, ace king suited. You know, maybe you call from position with like your mid pocket pairs, or maybe you know you you can you can use some game theory to. Yeah, I would even say that. But if you don't know people and you don't understand, you kind of got to play close close to the vest. You know what I mean? But I'm the guy that wants to be at the wild table, okay, with all sorts of nuance, all sorts of like left field events that happen because that's where my edge is. You know, the, the less back testable something is, the more qualitative, the more holistic something is, I want to be involved in that market, okay? Because it requires you to think fast, assimilate some information fast in a way that's unlikely to be readily programmable. Sure, sure. I, I like that. That's very unique. And I, I understand the comparison, like the poker comparison, uh, perfectly because you it's like you know for someone like myself I um I'm like like poker wise right and even like trading I try to be you know as systematic as possible but then uh you know deviate when new circumstances come where you like to you like to get beyond the game tree like no like let's get far out like to where no one knows what's going on uh I, re- I really like that that makes a lot of sense uh how much like so before you had this software what have been the biggest like i i assume this has been a humongous uh or a big input you know boost your trading how did you handle it before before sure, so what, what impact software is is impact stands for market price action okay and it allowed me to like trade economic events and fed events where there exists a lot of gap risk okay for a lot of people when the jobs event comes out you know they, they'll minimize positions um but I actually like learned a lot about these economic events, how markets are positioned around them, what they're expecting and how they influence markets. And then I took all that knowledge over six years and applied that with a number of like execution trade secrets and built impact software, okay? So that software allows me to, at a very primal level, manage event risk. But then as you can imagine, like, it's kind of like, you know, when you start to build something like, oh, I know what I want to do. I want to build a little, I want to build like a, a six by eight foot slab but then by the time you're done with it, you have a three-story house built on that six foot eight foot you know, <laughs> slab, okay? And so you kind of got to tear the whole damn thing down at some point and like take the concepts and rebuild them from scratch again because you've kind of gotten, gotten ahead of yourself. But at least that idea of, of programmatically attacking a, a, a factor or, or a strategy in the market then spun off to, to do other things algorithmically as well. But nonetheless, I'm still largely a click trader that uses technology to assist me but not, but but I'm not the guy that like sets something and walks away for three hours and looks from my smartphone from my yacht and checks my profits. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm a guy that's like being around because so much of these opportunities are are fluid and are happening at two, three in the morning sometimes. And and you know, I mean, hey, <laughs> John, we you know we, we've talked about the importance of risk. Um, risk if you don't have an edge then it's you know we're we're almost talking you know there's no point of even talking about it for the listeners going out like listening to this uh any advice on finding an edge yeah find yourself so first of all i'd say when you want to find your edge you're the edge okay Mm -hmm. what you have and i talk about this in global macro edge what you have is unique your perspective of the market is unique it's not necessarily atypical and so far as like man it feels like the market's kind of heavy here that part of it feels like the market's kind of light here that part's not unique but your life experiences what you've learned what you discover there's lots of little nuances that exist in trading even on on the most broadly traded markets out there but if you go to markets that are not maybe as broadly followed your experience maybe in the healthcare industry as a nurse or your experience 
from having dealt with, dealt with working at a semiconductor firm or your experience in just following this one, maybe the Russell 2000 contract, okay? And how it responds at this time of the day or whatever. You can establish something that you can make your own and even one strategy that you really get granular on, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep is what I say, okay? Get an inch wide and a mile deep in whatever you're doing, all right? And really drill down on what your edge is. If your edge is that you work a part-time job like probably a lot of your listeners do, and training is just simply supplemental for them, like for a lot of us have been in, in life. I mean, I mean, I was there at a time. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, what times can you trade? Well, if we're in a, 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 a period of price discovery now in crypto, you know, what's your best bet? If, if Ethereum's going to 15,000, then maybe your best bet is, or you think that, I'm not guaranteeing that, but if you think that, your best bet is to do a little buy and hold, um, understand stuff and, and then and share the strategy with someone else and you can start to use OPM and other people's money. So like, I think that part of it is, your edge is both one, what market potential you see from doing your own internal deep dive analysis and two, how you can manifest that into a real business. Because if you can then take that edge and, and, and scale it, you have something really special to where now you can make this a living. Mm-hmm. Love it, beautifully right. said. I love, I love how in the book, um, how you relate to emotion in trading. And yeah. it, it's almost, you, you, it's like uh, using our emotions as a contrarian indicator sure sure uh you know because like you know I, the, the human mind like i don't think evolved to to uh do these you know at gamble in, in a proper manner can you just talk can you just talk to like like you know how you use the these emotions just tell the audience about it yeah i mean i've spent a lot of time working with um performance coaches you know um in, in terms of trying to understand i mean i've gone through hypnotherapist um i've gone through um a lot of a lot of journaling over 18 years of like trying to manifest every mental edge I could possibly find, okay? Because like, let's face it, guys, our brain is our biggest asset here, all right? That's sort of what we, you know, we are in an information business. <laughs> exactly. And so, and so, like, for me, like, understanding, like, am I feeling, like, fearful? Am I feeling, like, in a place of calm confidence? Like, I, when it comes to, like, the biggest trades, like, I tend to have this, like, real calm confidence about how this is going to go. If I start to get a little too greedy and feel like, man, this trade can be blah, blah, blah. That's a sure sign I probably like just bought the high tick, you know? And that happens to me. Like I've been training for 20 plus years. I'm a, I'm a market wizard. You know what I mean? Like whatever that means, you know? <laughs> and so like the fact that, the fact that like I can like buy a high tick and feel like, like, oh my God, I'm about to make a bunch of money. And, and believe me, I'm, I'm sufficiently self-aware of these emotions that I like. Yeah. I've done a good job of not letting them like, you know, override my risk management process, but still, or it's like, man, I'm feeling a little fearful here. Like this is kind of a little... If I, and if I'm feeling fearful, then I know others are feeling fearful because I'm pretty freaking salty, okay? So damn, if I'm a little bit afraid to be long here, there's other people afraid. So we gotta be very careful and just kind of watch how this unfolds, you know, and go from there. But then other times, like I just get dialed the, dialed the heck in. And when I get dialed in and I'm just feeling the market, I'm internalizing the market price action and I'm thinking two, three, four steps ahead. I'm in that place of calm confidence where I can, I can just, you know, where I'm dealing with the corded part of my brain, not the amygdala. And I'm just like analyzing everything in an effortless, fluent way. I know I'm kind of in that zone. And that's the time I want to like really focus on and really do things to, to keep me there as long as possible because it's, it's usually a very profitable place. Mm-hmm. Excellent. What did you, I, I mean, we talked we talk a little bit about, um, you know, I guess we haven't, we've touched on like Robin Hood, Wall Street, right. like these communities getting together, uh, you know, FOMOing into stocks um very unique what was your perspective your take on all this and and if you're making adjustments 
uh, maybe to your strategies or to the environment? Yeah, truthfully, like I follow the stocks only just kind of answer like the GameStop thing that went on. You know what I mean? I I just didn't, <laughs> I trade, the futures just keep me so busy. And it's like, and I, and I have, and I watch stocks and I pay attention to them, but like, is, is, it, is it what's effectively like sort of like my own self kind of CTA, you know what I mean? In terms of like, I, yeah. I trade these major, you know, six asset classes, 35 futures contracts and the corresponding weekly and monthly options on those contracts. Like I don't, you know, and, and I watch the crypto, but like, there's just so many hours in the day mm-hmm. and just trading like Ethereum futures or Bitcoin futures or trading, you know, fixed income futures or whatever, like, man, there's enough to keep you more than busy with that stuff. Oh, and like, wow. I'm aware of it, but it just, you know, you know, I don't run a hedge fund. I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm just talking about me here. So like, that's like, I'm aware of them and like, good. I mean, I'm, I think anything that gets people into the markets and educate themselves in the long term is going to be beneficial. Um, and, you know, if you need to learn about risk, I'm, buy my book. I don't know what to say. Like, it's just. Yeah, no, they do. No, those kids do need to learn about risk. John, yeah. so if any yeah, of you guys exactly. go get his book, go get this guy's book. Tell, tell the listeners uh, about your book. What made you write it? What's, what's the content yeah. inside? Sure. Um, the Global Macro Edge, Maximize and Return Punitive Risk is really, you know, it's a 600 page book that took me five years to write. I wrote it from 2011 to 2016. Um, it's my heart and soul. It underwent a number of iterations, but literally have 14 different market practitioners. I audited, I had my track record audited where I took $100,000 and what seems pale in comparison to these crypto returns we see now, made 3.1 million on it, had those returns audited over six years, but started with 100K and made whatever. sorry that was my frying pan um made you know did quite well but again the key was that i was an author that did his returns and i walked people through the process and had the audited returns to sort of back that up that this is what i've done and this is what i what i strongly believe in you know to say that they will work going forward we have to put the necessary disclosures out there obviously that listen you know i've done this hopefully it works going forward but this is what i've done these are the returns i've gotten go from there you know but it really covers three things you know it covers you know, strategy creation, all right, or regime recognition, which is where we talk about the regimes, how we recognize regimes, the strategy creation, which is now you know the regimes, what strategies, what strategies work in those regimes, and ultimately execution. Well, now you know the regime, you know the strategies, now how are you going to put those strategies into place? And so it's really a comprehensive look from soup to nuts that will benefit a money manager or someone who wants to become a professional hedge fund manager, benefit an investor so they know what questions to ask, and ultimately benefit an advisor who wants to consult and refer people, hey, this manager's good, or hey, this might be a nice investment fit, and here's the metrics I use, specifically the netto number, which I talked about that, you know, return per unit of risk. Well, if you have that million dollar portfolio and you have only 200K that you can risk, well, your netto number is gonna be different if you generate a 20% return with only a 200K risk budget on a million than the guy who actually can lose the entire million dollars. Because don't you admit that if you gave me two choices, I don't have the guy that had that risk budget and define the risk, who made me 20% than the guy that had no risk budget whatsoever. I mean, one person demonstrated under tremendous skill and he had, you know, less flexibility, whereas the other person had, had, had no, you know, no constraints on him or her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What, what, uh, what year did you write this book? 2000. Well, I wrote it from 2011 to 2016. It came out in late 2016. Okay. But the principles and concepts are like as good as ever, you know? Yeah. Well, because, you know, I was just reading the, uh, you know, like the description and the, the reviews were great on the book, by the way, they, they talk, it mm-hmm. talked to you like the detail you really put into the book, obviously that thick of a book, I'm, I'm sure you did. It said in the description, you say that today's markets offer fewer opportunities. I was just okay. curious to what that, yeah. 
Yeah, no, no, what I actually busted. So what the book does is bust the six biggest myths out there. One of those myths is that there's fewer opportunities. Oh, that's more. okay, I misread. That's a myth. I'm saying okay. there's actually more opportunities, not fewer. Sorry, okay? sorry, yeah, I misread. No worries, no worries. So th those six myths are, you know, more risk equals more return. Actually, it's smarter risk that equals more return, okay? Emotions are our biggest enemy. Actually, they can be our biggest ally, okay? Compensation should be based on returns, no? Compensation should be based on returns per unit of risk, not just based on your returns, okay? And so I walk through these like the six biggest myths, or at least what I perceive to be the biggest myths on Wall Street at the time. And I talk about not only the problems they cause, but then how to solve those problems and how to bust those myths completely and recalibrate the way you approach and think. Mm -hmm. I love it. Now it's great. You guys go out there and get the book. We're going to get it. I mean, you just, you see how this guy's brain is just firing all over the place, all this into a book. Let's play pepper, baby. We're playing yeah. pepper. <laughs> There's no script here. Yeah, no I, I know. I know. I love it. I love it. You come out of Vegas, man. I, I know we touched on some of the gambling activities you have done. Is there any uh, recreation gambling activity that, that's your go to right now? You know, the, the pandemic kind of ended that like, listen, man, like I, I got vaccinated a couple months ago, but like, just saying, dude, like, like I enjoy playing poker casually, you know, once in a while, but like, dude, I'm not, <laughs> I just, I didn't go and play poker. Even I didn't need it that bad. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, I mean, I got a daughter now and I mean, I just, my life and you know, I was going to law school and so just at night and stuff. So like, I mean, I'm just always trying to learn stuff and trying to grow and right now, just like blowing up law professors is kind of my hobby at nights. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll end up being a licensed attorney one day, but only for fun. So maybe I can testify in this or go in front of the Supreme Court one day and like take down big tobacco or something just for as a hobby, just because it'll just like the cerebral gymnastics it would take to like, you know, go and like litigate some like monster case and be in like this big courtroom or argue a case, argue some sort of constitutional law in front of the Supreme Court. How cool would that be? Yeah, yeah, you'd be the man. No, it, I, I thought it was funny how Jack was like, yo, this guy has time to do law school and to do all this. Like, how do you how do you manage doing both? I mean, what's that? What's that like? To, like going to law school? Like, but, but it's fun. It's fun because like you're sitting there and like a lot of trading is like you're building this thesis, you're building this investment thesis, you're, you're putting together your arguments, you know, and like and you're looking for holes in the arguments. And that's that's really not much different than like trading. Yeah. And, you know, you don't know the outcome necessarily. And, and there's a lot of qualitative sort of fuzzy stuff. And and when you come to that, like, you know, persuading a jury, like you got to handicap this jury. You have to like understand, you know, pre-existing stat statutes and pre-existing, you know, cases and how they influence things and understand psychology and how you're going to negotiate with opposing counsel about, you know, what, what, what their case is. And, and, and empathy is a huge factor. Like I need to empathize with what other market participants, other market participants are doing in the same way I empathize with what maybe opposing counsel is thinking or what, you know, the defendant's thinking or the plaintiff is thinking, you know, what's their deal? What are they trying to hide? You know what I mean? What are they a little too willing to volunteer? What are they not so willing to volunteer? You know what I mean? I love so it's it. just another extension of playing poker. You know, it's going exactly. to law school. Exactly. Because I, I, I've had the same thought, John. I thought I was like, man, like a really good poker player, a really good trader, just, just a really good strategist in general. Yeah. It, could, it would make for a good lawyer, right? It's just all strategy. Well, like, sure. like you're saying. And when you do it every day, like our brain stays sharp. You know what I mean? Like when you're, yeah. when you're around us all the time, we're staying, we're engaging our, our, you know, we're not caught in some mundane, repetitive, yeah. kind of um you know kind of job pedestrian job it's it's a it, it it's it requires constant thought and constant you know evolution and so when i get in these classes and like the professor brings something up i have like you know i'm 46 i'm, I'm older than half my professors in there and so i'm bringing up <laughs> these real world cases like mm -hmm. well professor blah 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 you know what i mean and i think of all these situations because i'm a risk contingency guy yep, and yep. and i'm like you know it just 
it's cool. And like, she's like, man, I'm not fucking with you, dude. <laughs> where, I mean, where were you? Like, where were you? I, I had like literally you? classes. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Where were you when I got my, my Wells notice? Jesus, I could have used uh, you. Yeah, you, yeah. you don't want me for that one, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I have a John that'll represent you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a. Uh, yeah, but, no, John, I, I thought just like to, you know, for, for us that like do this for a living. Um, yeah, I've always thought it's like, man, it gives us like, I think an edge in certain situations in life. Um, it may, maybe this is me being biased uh, on us, but I just think the way we see things and like you say, like staying sharp and processing, like we can have certain edges in certain situations, like even just me dating girls, I can't turn it off. I'm thinking what's, what's the <laughs> optimal strategy? Where, where do I take her? What day? Oh, how soon do I, you know, you think of all these things. What's GTO here? Yeah, um, what's ETO for sure. Um, yeah. I'll tell you what, like I've, I, wow, that's a great, woo. Um, I, I think when it comes to like everything but relationships, like, like the, I mean, even relationships, that's how I approach it as well. Having gone through, you know, I think we've all gone through tough personal situations, tough relationships that didn't work out like we thought, which, you know, is probably a, a metaphor for business in general. You know, for, there are trades that you really think are going to work out well, they don't. The other trades, you're actually quite surprised how well they work out. You know what I mean? And that's probably a microcosm for sort of, you know, dating, dating or marriage or, or life. And whether it's with your parents, your son, your, a new, a new friend you made, et cetera. But I would say that, you know, there is that constant assessment of probability. And that is the way I think too, you know, but I would say this, that like for the people out there, like focus in your relationships on the connection that you have with people, you know, and connections come naturally or they, they, they come from like actively listening and being empathetic to like what that person is and, and thinking more like we before me. Okay. So if, if, if and, and I think one thing that I've done well in my Wall Street career, my trading career is, or two things actually, is one, identify talent. And the second is provide value in a relationship. So, so I've met a lot of really talented people that have taught me quite a bit. Okay. And I think I've done them right because where my moral compass sits. All right. And I've, I've done the best when I've thought about we before me. And when you think that way, I found that a lot of good things tend to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, so yeah, I, I can, I can see as well how like sometimes, you know, I've had people be like, Oh, Ray, you're always, you know, almost like I'm cold or something. It's like, no, yeah. I just know real, I know probabilities. I know, <laughs> I know it more visceral than most people it, right. and, it, and it can come across in that nature and it's like i'm just being realistic i'm not you know but that's great advice great advice um john favorite market wizard in the book or someone's chapter you really enjoyed Ooh, um i read it i read i read every chapter in the book um and the name god the previous chapter to mine is the one i enjoyed the most though because and I, the guy's name is a, he's an Indian gentleman. I actually talked with him, really cool guy, really sharp. And our style, I think I was chapter six, he was chapter five, or I was chapter seven, he was chapter six. Oh yeah. But his- Dalji, Dalji, I don't he, know. Yeah, no, he's, yeah. he's cool as fuck, he's cool yeah. as fuck. Um, and he actually takes a very similar macro approach that I do. We actually like, you know, subscribe to some of the same institutional research um, in there. And we, we have some, some similar like, you know, war stories mm -hmm. about trading the macro futures markets. And, you know, we've synced up a few times and I really enjoyed his chapter. In fact, uh, honestly, when I first read his chapter, I thought I was reading my chapter. When I first hit the book, mm -hmm. I was reading like open to a page and I'm like starting reading, he's talking about trading euro dollars and this news headline hit and how he's like assessing the news headlines and stuff. And I'm like, oh, 
And I realized, oh, no, wait, this isn't my, my chapter is six pages from now or whatever, you know? So um, I actually liked his chapter quite a bit mm-hmm. and I would, I would identify with him in terms of the unknown marker wizard side. In terms of the known marker wizard side, I'm probably deferential to Paul Tudor Jones, you know? Yeah, yeah Paul Tudor, yeah. Yeah, PTJ, PT Jizzle, you yeah. know, doing it. Yeah, uh, I feel like that's one of like the chalk answers, but it is. He's a, he's a chalk not, answer. It's a chalk answer. Yeah, it man. is. It is. No. You know who I, lo- who I always go to? I mean, I love Ed Thorpe just because his no. dude hit yeah. the, the, the roulette to blackjack. You know, what There's he no did. wrong answer, man. There's no wrong answer. There's no dude. wrong answer. No. Um, but yeah, man, no, we got it. We'll have to get Dell. We'll have to get him on the podcast because that's what we're doing. You know, we got you. We, we've had a few of them on um, and you Jack did a great job. I mean, all you guys have been great interviews. Um, JJ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anything else for our ma'am uh, before we get going? No, it's been great having you on. I love it when we can bring someone on who, uh, you know, pulls back the curtain and gives the, the retail folks some education. It's really great. Thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for facilitating that. This doesn't happen if you guys don't, you know, you're, you're the conduit to the audience. So thank you for like, you know, thank you for sparring and playing Pepper. You know what I mean? It, it was great. <laughs> Non-script, extemporaneous interview. Good stuff all around, man. Good, good work, guys. No, nah, man. Awesome, man. No, we, we appreciate you just, man, just, just sharing all your knowledge, man, all your wisdom with us. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, that's going to conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed the episode, please rate and review it for us. If you guys like to join JJ, myself, and a professional group of traders, join us at microefutures.com. John, tell the listeners where they can find you. Anything else you want them to know? Just Twitter, at John Netto. Um, you know, pretty straight, J-O-H-N-N-H-E-T-O. And, and, and buy the book. All the profits have gone to uh, support service dogs for military veterans. So getting great market education, helping a good cause. Absolutely. All right. So for John Netto, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of house streets. Make sure you're using stops up. All right. Peace. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs>